folks. Welcome back inside the Parisi Palace. Hour number two of the Jake Feinberg Show on KEVT Power Talk, 12, 10 a.m. Sarita Tucson, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. It's my honor to bring in a guy who I've been searching for for a long time. I happened to tip him off to my interview with Ralph Towner, and now I got him on my show. Paul McCandless, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on today. It's really, really an honor to talk to you, man. That that tune we just heard, Cry of the Peacock Corral, and um, that was done by Oregon. And um, But I, I wanted to ask you, Paul, um, you know, were there seminal oboe players that you and your dad got off on growing up? Well, I was mostly inspired by classical oboe players. They, they had uh, beautiful... Uh, rich tones and uh, being able to express melodies in a really expressive kind of way. So that that really appealed to me as a young guy. I heard Marcel Tabuteau and uh, John Delancey and uh, Robert Bloom, who was my teacher later, uh, was a big inspiration also. These are all great oboists. Oh, I, I mean, this is phenomenal because you're, I mean, I've never heard anybody sonically uh, expand sound like like you on the oboe. Your dad was an oboe player as well? Yes, my dad played the oboe, and my granddad played the oboe also. Can you can you talk about some of the settings that you're? I mean, the oboe was considered not considered a jazz instrument, right? I mean, I mean, when was the first time that you? Are yeah, I guess the right question is what was what was the first time you you played the oboe in a jazz setting? Uh, I think I was in uh, I was in uh, in high school, and uh, I was at a music camp, and we transcribed some some uh, uh, jazz tunes from a, a record collection we had. And uh, that was the first I had done uh, of uh, improvising on the oboe. Can you take us through that experience as, to, as how it re- was different from the classical idiom as opposed to impro- improv- improvisation? Well, the, 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 uh, your attention is in a different location when you're improvising. Uh, when you play classical music, you see that you can see the phrase in front of you, and find your best way to express it, and to uh, uh, to perform it. Whereas in uh, under improvising, uh, you choose uh, your choices are not how you're going to play the phrase that's already composed, but what the phrase is that you're going to play. Um, so you're actually choosing the, choosing the notes that you're going to use. So it's a very different orientation. And uh, when I first began improvising on the oboe. I would lose my uh, uh, sense of phrasing that I had in classical music uh, because I was distracted by having to come up with the, the notes that I was going to play. But uh, over time, I learned how to maintain my tone quality and still be improvising in a free free manner. <clears throat> would you say that you were attempting this prior to the high school experience, or was that the first time that you were really trying to get those chops together? Uh, in high school, I was, uh, I only did a little bit of improvising on the oboe, uh, but in college, I played with a band, uh, uh, a dectet from Duquesne University, and uh, we had all kinds of woodwind doublers in that band, and I, I wrote some charts for the band that featured the oboe, and um, that was really my, my first uh, serious uh, foray into improvised music, especially on the oboe. Talking to Paul McCandless here on the Jake Feinberg Show. You grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Can you talk about uh, 
you know, the, there was such a vibrant touring scene through going east to west coast and there and back. Um, you talk about some some of the black jazzers that you saw, uh, maybe the first time that you saw somebody that just uh, turned you, opened up your mind and said, you know, this is this is some deep stuff. Well, I, I don't think I I heard the the great jazz musicians, black or white, in person. Um, I did hear Woody Herman's band and Ahmad Jamal uh, when in my, in my youth. These guys toured like crazy, and uh, probably more than anybody else. And uh, so I heard them, and uh, it really knocked me out. And another experience I had was uh, uh, during a rainstorm with a lot of heavy cloud cover, I was waxing my mother's floor, and I heard music that, from Schenectady, New York, that I had never heard before, partly due to the weather. And I heard Cannibal Adderley and Miles Davis for the first time, and John Coltrane for the first time that night. And I just said to myself, what is that? I want to... <laughs> I want to be able to play like that. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what, what Ahmad was doing, you know, to your ear that was so inspirational? Well, I think that what I, one of the things I really enjoyed about Ahmad Jamal was his sense of form. Uh, he didn't uh, just play tunes and then improvise on the same material and go back to the tune like head, chorus's head. He, uh, he had a very elaborate arrangements and even a system for cueing the band from moving from one tune to the next or one section to the next. And uh, I, I found that similar to classical music in the sense that the composition was uh, nearly as important as, and, as the uh, improvisation, whereas in, in East Coast jazz it was much more, the improvisation was really what counted, and the, uh, the themes were kind of throwaways. Mm, this is fascinating. What was the kind of cues he would give? Like what kind of nonverbal cues would he give the band? Uh, he would hold up two fingers. I heard them mixing two standards one night. Wow! And uh, they they played you know the, the first section of the standard, and then Ahmad would hold up two fingers and they'd go to the bridge of the second standard, and then stay on the second standard and go back to the first. And he did that you know with one finger up, two fingers up. Very simple, but uh, amazingly effective. Un unbelievable! That and so then. From there, you go. You said you were in a dectet. I'm not good in math. How many people is that? Ten. Ten. Ten people in a dectet. Now, what? What? what you say it was chamber music. What kind of music was it? Well, no, it was like a small big band. Uh, a there small was a band very record. famous uh, <laughs> small big band record called. Uh, um, oh dear, it's escaped me at the moment. No, you. So it was a bit. I mean, it will come back. But I'm saying you, you guys cut an album. Uh, no, we were we were a college band, and we our our biggest uh, event was to go to the uh, Notre Dame Jazz Festival, right? And, and the Villanova Jazz Festival in Pennsylvania, and uh, I, I actually heard some great music that I'd never heard before, uh, featuring a band uh, that uh, was led by Jim McNeely, who I've uh, just just worked with again after about forty years. Wow! Uh, from our first meeting. He was playing soprano sax back then. <laughs> what was interesting at that time? What caught your ear about McNeely at that time? Uh, he was getting uh, a lot of more free improvisation out of the big band contest context, and uh, so that the music was very colorful and really, really powerful and lots, lots of uh, high energy. And I, I had never heard that that version of jazz in person before, so it was uh, it was really exciting for me. So. Um Colin Walcott, rest in peace. I've interviewed 
Glenn Moore on several occasions, just interviewed Ralph Towner, and now I get to complete the circle with um, with Paul McCandless. But the interesting thing is I've documented quite a bit of the origins of how Towner and Moore got into the Paul Winter consort, but McCandless was already in the consort for a, a year or two, and I'd like you to talk to the audience about how you connected originally with Paul Winter. Uh, well, actually, Paul Winter uh, connected me. Uh, I got connected with Paul through my oboe teacher, who was uh, named Robert Bloom, who was a, played first oboe in a Tuscanini orchestra. And uh, both Paul Winter and, and Robert Bloom were in Israel uh, concertizing, and they met, and uh, Paul's English horn player was going back to MIT to teach math, and uh, Paul was looking for a, a new English horn player. So Robert Bloom knew I had done some improvising in, uh, in my career because I, I played a number of different instruments. And um, so he recommended giving me a try, and Paul and I hit it off really well. We had a, the, the sound of the oboe and the English horn blending with this, the soprano or the alto sax uh, was a really unique uh, tone color, and it was a kind of a signature sound for the band. Who was in that band before the uh, other cats from Oregon wound up in it? Um, we had a lot of different guys. Uh, Gene Bertoncini was yep, a great guitar absolutely. player. I've interviewed Gene. I, I was I, so okay. Continue, Bertoncini. Yeah, um, uh, John Beale played a, a bass. Um, uh, he, he was a, both jazz and classical bass player. And uh, Dr. Lynn Christie played with us. Uh, John Stauber. John Stauber. Yeah. Um, John Stauber, who was a classical guitar player, Rob, uh, uh, Oscar Castroneves was a was a big addition to the band. He was a great arranger and writer and guitar player, and uh, kind of opened up the world of Brazilian music to me and to the consort. He he opened it up to to Paul as well. Uh, I, I it was a it was a great experience to work with Oscar Castroneves because uh, he uh, was capable of of singing and playing. The uh, uh, bossa nova music with complete independence. His voice was not tied to what he played with the guitar. So he created another level of phrasing, and uh, he, he taught that to me and to Paul. It was a it was a real eye opener. That is that's similar to he was kind of like similar to a Saivuka kind of cat. Uh yes, yes, yes. It, um, you know, can you who played traps with you? Who's on trap set? Uh, mostly we didn't have traps. Paul was looking for a different sound, and so we kept it. We had uh, Vince Delgado played uh, uh, the, uh, a hand drum from uh, whoa, 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 the whoa, whoa. Vince, Vince Delgado. Vince Delgado. Are you kidding? I interviewed Vince. I, I mean, Vince was a hate Ashbury Mexican who was playing Arabian percussion. Right, yeah. Paul heard him play and thought that would be a great sound for the consort. Oh. Thank you for making... This is why I do my show. Un, so Delgado was playing like uh, some sort of... Uh, uh, what is it? Oud or, or the tar? The, the tar, maybe? I think it was called a darbuka. A darbuka. So you really weren't... I mean, the... Because it's always that seminal story where... Um, I guess at a certain point, Paul Winter... Uh, he was he was looking for a trap drummer, and that's when you originally connected with with Glenn and, and Ralph. Well, he he was looking not for a trap drummer, but for something else. And Glenn and Ralph recommended Colin Walcott, who was working with Tim Harden at the time. 
and Colin played a lot of instruments, including tabla and sitar, which is a stringed instrument. And uh, and he was a, also a classical percussionist and had a wonderful sense of sound and and uh, uh, creating parts for himself. So he wasn't uh, really following in the, the mold of the, the jazz uh, trap set tradition. He was doing something else. I think Glenn and Ralph were with uh, were with. Um um, the name escapes me now. Bird on a Tim Harden. Tim Harden. Yeah, he. They were with Harden, but Colin was not. Colin was was off. They finally, he finally came into the band. But I guess the more important question is for younger cats out there who don't have the money to go to a thirty thousand dollar a year academia school, and who are searching for individual sound, and who just want to um, create original music. Can you talk about from your own perspective that early tour? with the winter consort when the quartet had an opportunity to play the opening set. And then afterwards you would play after just by yourselves. Can you talk to younger cats about how to cultivate original music within a group? Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the, the key to that for, for us was that uh, we had an unusual collection of instruments. You know, I played the oboe, Ralph played the classical guitar without a pickup just acoustic. Glenn played acoustic bass, and Colin Walcott played on a whole array of percussion instruments. And we didn't really have any music for the band. Um, we would, so we improvised quite a bit. And uh, we found that uh, the music we were making was unlike anything we'd heard from uh, other groups, and it was, it was inspiring. We felt like we were onto something uh, original and exciting. And uh, we we kept playing together uh, and started performing. Eventually, the four of us left the consort, and uh, our, our style kept expanding, uh, sometimes slowly and sometimes really fast. Uh, we had, were adding different instruments uh, as time went on. I started playing the bass clarinet. Paul, uh, Ralph uh, started including the piano, which initially didn't really fit with the Oregon sound, but uh, he started composing some music that was in a, a style that uh, was really compatible with our 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 musical style. Um, just breaking it down, I got original. So you had odd original instrumentation. You guys all had extremely solid technical backgrounds, but then it came down to: Can you talk about? You said you you realized that you were playing unique music, but I mean. Can you talk about in those early sessions when you were on tour, that 60, 50 state tour, whatever it was, 50 days, how you would just start it up? I mean, would you, would you, how, what, what role would you play? Would you say, Hey, let's, let's start this. Let's just start something in B flat or whatever. I mean, can you, can you, can you create that? Because I mean, it's about, it's the four of you, you know, I know, I, I know personally Glenn and I haven't ever met Ralph or you, but I mean, it takes a team effort and there's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes on in order to create transcendent unique music and I, I really want you to talk about your role in that forming of that improv music because ultimately you can listen back to it and then say oh wow this is different but you got to play it first yeah <laughs> well listening back was was a part of uh, our education we, we listened to uh, tape recordings of ourselves and kind of get a sense for the range of our style, how how uh, how it was going, because initially everything was so new with the new instruments and uh, and being sort of free improvisers. Um, 
we, we didn't we weren't that good at it in the beginning we had a hard time getting through a take on a record without somebody kind of crashing <laughs> so it, it took it took a while for us to develop our our skills and our consistency as improvisers and as performers uh, you you'd literally fall apart on the instrument is that what you're saying yeah, we'd fall like we'd get that we'd the time would break down or something terrible would happen and we'd have to stop and start over again. How much? Because it it strikes me I've done you know quite I've really chronicled uh, your early years and I look at you guys and 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 uh, there was a purest it was, there was a purity a purest mentality to your music. I mean, how did you let go of not you particularly but you know the idea of saying okay it's we want this to be organic but um, you know, we're, we're going to, how did you compromise that purist mentality? It seemed to me like there was this, you know, you look at, at you guys, such unique, diverse people, very true to the art form. You, you, maybe, maybe you're not, I'm not sure. I mean, you basically, the, the line was, you know, uh, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You'd starve to death. You'd just be an artist. You'd be a unique person. When did you, how did you get over that purity test? Oh, I don't think there was a real, uh, a real. There, there have been some challenges in terms of uh, trying to make our music more appealing um, to, to a wider audience, and a lot of our managers have kind of left in frustration, uh, throwing up their hands, saying, "Why, why don't you guys take advantage of what you've got?" Right. But uh, we, we've always kept the music for ourselves. I mean, we've had. Uh, I think it's one of the things that allows us to. Uh, keep growing and to keep enjoying playing together is that uh, it, we, we really do what we like and we almost never do anything we don't like. Well, that's the, th you nailed it. Thank you for articulating that. What were the kind of things that certain guys would want you to do? Oh, you know, uh, one manager thought we should all wear different costumes. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of embarrassing to even talk about. No, but but this is. But, but I got to tell you, Paul. Listen, you've done it, man. It's already in the books, so it's not. I mean, the idea is the idea. I was thinking more like, did they want you to, uh, you know, become more electric bass or shit, you know, wah pedals or try to get you know appeal to a rock audience? I just I would love to have been in those rooms with you guys, seeing your eyes roll with and or just the anger. I mean, was there was there visceral anger from you guys when these when these ideas would be put forth to you? Well, yeah, I think that uh, there, there was a uh, something that happens with young musicians is that they're afraid of being accused of selling out. You know that uh, whatever that means. Right. Um, and uh, I think our management uh, at various points were suggesting things that for us seemed like oh, this is kind of crass commercialization. And so uh, we, we didn't take their advice on a lot of subjects. In this, but, uh, yeah, no, in this day and age, I think it's really important. I mean, it's, it was a very different time back then. Let's face it, Vanguard, you know, cranked out a, a decade's worth of records for you. You guys were on there for a long time. In today's, yeah. in today's world, tell, talk to younger cats who, because um, it, it's a different ball game now. So how do you not, how would you, advise cats to not sell out, stay true to your music and still make a living. I, I think for each, each band has its own formula for that. Maybe each musician does as well. But what, what I see is that uh, people find 
their groups that they have kind of an affinity with, or musicians that they want to work with, and they they become bands, and uh, they they find a way to to present themselves um, that, that uh, appeals to an audience and allows them to uh, play play the music that they want to create. But uh, I, I think there's no real formula that I can tell you for uh, uh, for success or for survival. I think each, each group has its own own pathway. The name Charlie Parker kept coming up in my head this week. Um, I know you're not a Trump uh, horn, a sac- well, you do play saxophones. Um, did you ever get to see Bird play? No, I didn't. Uh, I think I think Charlie Parker died in the early fifties. And I was uh, didn't come to New York till the summer of '67, which I think is the year that that uh, John Coltrane died. That's exactly right. So I unfortunately missed seeing Train playing live. Can you can you talk about some of the the horn players? I mean, obviously, Elvin. You know, I, I haven't transcribed that excerpt yet, but Elvin got off on you guys. He said, "That's my music. I'm in that music." Were there yeah. horn, th- were there cats that came up to you? Because uh, you weren't, you weren't, you were playing exotic oboe or you know, cl- cl- you know, very unique. But did you have horn players come up to you and say, "Dude, that's badass"? Uh, you know, I I had a few few compliments from great saxophone who, who, players. Who 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 was that? Well, like uh, um, Dave Liebman was was very encouraging, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeremy Steig oh, yeah. thought that I was really a great oboe player and that I should really push myself to. To become a you know even better player, um, the great great tenor and soprano player named Ernie Krivda, I love who, him. Uh, I've interviewed complimented Ernie. me by uh, uh, telling me that you know a lot of what he's playing had come from my oboe phrasing. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> How cool is that? I mean that that's is... very cool. Yeah, Ernie, man. Ernie is a, as a wonder, and uh, it was very rewarding to get a compliment like that. Wow, that kind of just blew my. I kind of just lost my train of thought there. Jeez, that's unbelievable. Um, did you? Yeah, but the thing about yeah. the saxophone, and uh, you know, getting, receiving some encouragement, um, uh, I've I've had a chance to to share a bill with a lot of great saxophone players, and uh, my uh, musical expression has a lot more to do with the, all the different instruments that I play, and. Uh, and what I wanted to say was that the oboe is not really capable of playing some of the things that you can play on a saxophone. And so uh, I, I had to come up with uh, sort of my own way of phrasing that was in tune with the oboe and uh, and was not like trying to imitate a saxophone. Can you, can you be specific at least in one way of how you did that? Oh, well... Uh, with the, with the saxophone, you you can uh, sort of ghost notes and slip and slide into things. <laughs> it's a very flexible instrument. Sure. The, the oboe is a very um, straight-laced kind of instrument, and uh, you have to play every note. And they, either they come out or they don't. There's no ghost notes. So uh, it's not a casual instrument. And that, that also feeds over into the style that you can play it in. It's not a very casual style. It's more uh, an elegant um, uh, straight-laced kind of style. You mentioned the um, Liebman, and you mentioned um, Jeremy Steig. Something tells me that you were at least participating in that vibrant loft scene of New York. Were you? Yes, yeah. That, that, that stuff was going on when Oregon was just getting started. 
we played a few loft concerts. We played some double bills with uh, Richie Byrack and Dave Liebman. Oh, this is unbelievable. I mean, it, I guess, can you talk about how that helped the music? Gr- I transcribed something from George Duke about uh, just, and he was talking more about the, the studios that were present in New York and L.A. and Fantasy Records and Chicago and how that, that interaction of real musicians ca- having to go to the studio, four or five different sessions going on at a time, it helped the music grow. Can you talk how those loft sessions, all those casts, Chick Rea was in those loft sessions. You know, how, yeah. how, how did it help the music grow in vocabulary? Well, I think that uh, the, the loft scene uh, made it possible for a lot of people to exp- you know, play music that was not really accessible enough to be played in a jazz club. And, uh, and the, it was a, a very uh, forgiving scene. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we, uh, there was a lot of music that was very freely created and, uh, and, and performed in the, in the loft scene. I remember... Uh, um, there was also a great opportunity for people who had a compositional bent to have their music uh, performed live. What do you, so can you can you share an example? Because I'm always I'm always under this impression, being born in '78, that that loft music was absolutely palatable in a jazz club. But what what was no. yeah? So so no. So what can you give an example of uh, some some kind of composition that was brought in there that that you guys were able to blow on? Um, some some of that music was uh, um, like, uh, m- m- very free. I remember Sam Rivers and Barry Altschul and uh, um, uh, Bob Stewart on tuba, uh, and Arthur Blythe. Uh, there were so many really great performers in the loft scene, and in, so- in Soho and some of the uh, some of the art galleries also featured live music. What when, I mean, free is such a Relative term. What I mean, I can't believe, by the way, that you just name dropped Barry Atchell because I just connected with him on Facebook and he is listening live right now. So very cool that you just name dropped him. But I mean, uh, yeah. can he you played with the Winter Consort very briefly before Oregon Band? Uh, yes. Wow. Okay, we're already getting to the nuggets here. The uh, <laughs> okay. So what did what does free mean in that context, though? Um. Yeah. I, actually, free. You've, you've, you've stopped me. <laughs> okay, well, listen, you uh, think about that, because i got a piece of music here. we got a, a, a game called Name That Tune. Let's come back, and we'll break it down, okay? Okay, sounds good.
Music on the Jake Feinberg Show, brought to you by the Craig Pretzinger Agency, Allstate Insurance, the Stereo Hospital, Abbott Taylor Jewelers, and the Circle Tree Ranch of Southern Arizona, and we thank them for their support. All right, Mr. McCandless, what do you got for us, brother? Well, I'm I'm still kind of spinning from the the cut you just played. I don't know, if, is that being played on the air? Uh, oh, that, dude, that's blowing out all over the world, man. Amazing. That's a that's uh, with a Dave Dave Friesen and uh, Steve Gadd and John Stoll. You better believe it, brother. And that the name of that tune is called Winter's Fall. And I could have chosen like three or four tunes on that because to borrow one of Ernie Krivda's titles of one of his albums called Satanic. I mean this. Your blowing on this is ferocious. I've never, I mean, it's just burning. And, and and that's just one track. And I have to tell you, Friesen came down here with more last year. They did a double bass concert, and they also performed at the school where I taught journalism. And uh, this album, I couldn't get my ear around this album when I first got into music in the late 90s. But listening to it now, it is by far and away one of the most underrated albums of all time. And for 1976... It just put me back in that time because, man, you were you were feeling free and easy and just, I'm just so proud to blow that stuff all over the world, man, because if it affects one or two people, I'm doing my job. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really struck by, you know, the intensity and uh, uh, the sort of the uh, uh, freedom that, uh, that that thing expresses. Yeah, that's an English horn solo on there that... Uh, I I don't know if I can play like that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that was English horn. That was yeah. English, un. Do you remember? I mean, that to me, it was like. I mean, I know you guys were. It was the perfect. I mean, do you remember Friesen calling you for that gig, or how did that yeah, work? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was really tickled. I was happy to be a part of it. And and of and course uh, the pulse and and, the, yeah. and it brought out something. We did a lot of rehearsing for that recording. And, uh, and it got us really ready uh, for the recording. <clears throat> and uh, I, it was a, a different kind of a ensemble than, than the Oregon group, and it, uh, it brought out a different, different color for me. Well, it's called Star Dance, and uh, I highly recommend you pick it up so you can start channeling that sort of, I don't know, I mean, it just, it, when, I hear, when I heard you playing it, it was like, this is like, I feel like you were like playing like Charlie Parker. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Just the, the thesaurus of, of the sequencing of the ideas was phenomenal. How can you talk in lay terms to people when, like when you hear a solo like that and you have to lose yourself, how, you know, what, how do you do that? Um, I think that at that point in time, I was practicing the oboe and the English horn, you know, like four or five, six hours a day. And I was really inspired by the virtuosos of the time the, uh, the fusion era had just begun, mm -hmm. and uh, so John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, uh, Herbie Hancock, um, and uh, and John McLaughlin, uh, all were a big inspiration. Even though Oregon and uh, our our compatriots were were moving in an acoustic direction at that point, but the, the energy, uh, the high energy improv stuff, and the exciting solos. Was a was a uh, came in part through the, the music of the fusion. The pulsating rhythms of Steve Gadd didn't hurt it either. Um, just oh, he sounded great. I was I had heard him play a lot of sort of groove oriented music, but I hadn't heard him play st uh, music like Dave Friesen's. And uh, he, is, he played yeah. it perfectly. What, okay, so what? I, 
Thank you. What is freezing music? Because it does, it does, it doesn't sound like jazz. Doesn't sound like classical. It's just burning. Well, how would you describe it? I, it's my favorite. I mean, it, it was so exciting for me today to talk to, uh, you know, guys on my show today that were these albums. I mean, you made that album, man. You crushed it. But I mean, what kind of music does Friesen play? Um, you know, most of the music that Dave plays is and and composes is composed on the bass for the most part. Right. And, uh, and th that brings out different kinds of phrases uh, th than you would get if you were playing a piano, uh, although he does play some piano. But uh, at that time, a lot of the music was came out of the bass. And when you, you know, transcribe that or adapt it to my instruments or John Stoll's instruments, it has a, has a different flavor. Can you talk about... Um you know, I know you didn't work. Oregon was kind of a, uh, you know, a self-policing band. There wasn't a de facto leader per se. You guys were kind of all in it together. And you, you, you have some bands now. As a leader, uh, can you talk about some qualities of leadership that you have found to be beneficial to your, to you as a as a person and as a player? Yeah, I I, uh, I haven't done a lot of leading of my own groups, but I'm doing more now. And uh, I think one of the, the most exciting bands that I worked with where I was a, in a lead role is uh, the, uh, the band with Lyle Mays and uh, Steve Rodby and uh, Mark Mark Walker and Fred Simon. We had a, a, a I made a, a record called Premonition in the early 90s. And uh, we, we did some touring with that group, including playing at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And uh, it, was, it was so exciting to be playing with musicians at that level of expertise that uh, initially it was, it was a challenge to be able to do the leader role and, and still play well. But uh, that, that group really helped me to do that. Um, listening back to Winter's... Um the freeze and tune we just heard you, you use the word intensity. There was, a, I, I talk about urgency. Um, you talk about the beginnings of the fusion period. Um, are there, uh, places you go in the world today that you hear that kind of urgency and burning in the music? Because a lot of the times now when I go and see music, I hate using labels, but it seems to me that, um, you know, cats are playing at high, high technical levels, but the spiritual qualities of music, the urgency, the burning, it's it's not as not as much there. And I'd like you to tell me where in the world you see that that sort of visceral fire still still burning. Yeah, I I, I, I see it a lot. You know, and mostly in in young players. Yeah. Um, and uh, they they keep coming up with different. Uh, uh, collections of styles and, and influences that uh, give their music a different uh, sort of an identity that's uh, distinct from other other bands. And um, I, I, here in Europe, you know, is a great uh, guitarist, Nguyen Lee, um, who's uh, based in Paris, and uh, he's made a number of albums in different directions, and it has that a lot of it has that blazing quality. But uh, also with the great, great compositional skills uh, mixed in. How often does Oregon get together now? Uh, we tour this year. We two, did two European tours. We did a tour in the spring and a long one in the fall in uh, 2015, and uh, inc and we inclu included a, a gig with the Frankfurt Big Band. 
mm. uh, the Radio Big Band with the uh, charts arranged by Jim McNeely that were just spectacular. Um, I, so it was one of the high points of Oregon's 2015. Did, did you, do you find that the faces in the audience have changed? Is it a different generation? Is it people that grew up from your generation? I mean, are you, do you find you have younger fans now? How do you, uh, or do you even engage with the audience at all? Oh, we, we have both. We have people with coming down front wanting us to sign their vinyl records. They, you know, they've got gray hair. And, uh, and then there's also these young ones who are music, mostly musicians uh, and uh, are, are grew up on Oregon or their parents were interested in Oregon or they, it, they found it speaks to their, their own style of music. So that's, uh, that's gratifying that it's not just the people we played for all these years, but, but a new audience as well. Yeah, and I think the cha- it's interesting that you say it's mostly musicians because I think a lot of music fans... Today, they've, I mean, for the last two decades, they've basically had digital beats shoved into their ears. It hasn't been spatial, organic world music. I mean, do you think that that will come around in a cyclical fashion again? Because you have musicians who are yearning for that, but what about the regular listeners? Ultimately, you need to have listeners to be able to have a, you need to have a, in order to. I think that the music keeps being redefined. Uh, I, I went to a friend's house the other day, and I was hearing this thumping. Uh, and uh, it turned out that the the boy in the family was uh, taking beats and uh, mixing them with uh, um, with Coltrane and with uh, uh, Mozart and like all different styles mixed in with these beats. And it, it's it's the the music somehow survives. It it keeps being redefined. And, uh, and and the, new, the younger generation finds their own ways of dealing with the past. Um, one of the L's on my show is life. And when I talk about life, I'm talking about overcoming adversity. And I was hoping you could talk about a time in your career where you were fighting it and um, how you overcame it and how it made you stronger. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, as, as a young guy in New York, I, I was playing the oboe, and uh, that was my strongest instrument. And the one that I had, I gave up all my other instruments and just focused on the oboe. And um, it was kind of frustrating because it didn't have the power that some of the other instruments have. And I wasn't able to play with uh, musicians that I really was interested in playing with. So um, I uh, addressed that my, my problems with that by getting really comfortable on the oboe and, uh, and adding some instruments to my repertoire, that, like the soprano sax and the bass clarinet, that uh, allowed me to, to play with uh, uh, other musicians who were in the jazz world. And uh, I, I, I yeah. had to work very hard to get out of the, uh, to become competent in that way. Did you wind, I just want to be clear for the record, before Paul Winter Consort, were you on any records before then? Uh, no. The, the, the uh, Something in the something in the wind was my first rec- uh, recording, and that was with, with the Paul, with Paul Winter. With Paul Winter, all right, McCandless, we've cooked on set one. I hope we can do set two sometime down the road. I really had a ball with you, man. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. It's nice to hear someone who has such a passion and interest in the music. Well, you better believe it, and please friend me on Facebook too, so I can disseminate these excerpts. All right. Excellent. All Thanks right. So much. All right, brother. Be good. Take care. Later on. And that's a wrap for the Jake Feinberg Show. We heard from 
bassist Carl Rucker. We heard from Odin Pope, great Philadelphia saxophonist. And we just heard from part of Oregon, Paul McCandless, oboe, English horn, soprano sax, and a whole other bevy of instruments. It was a burner. We got another show in store next week, two hours of the Jake Feinberg show on KEVT. Thanks to Mike Roper for filling in for Jackson Craft. Jackson, you get better real soon. Roper did a hell of a job. Um, yeah, that's it. Keep burning. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, and we'll see you all next week.